maybe I wasn't so entranced by technology, but I was entranced by what it could do for me. I knew, I knew that if I could learn the skills to do certain things like code so I could make my own website or use this music software so I could make my own music, that would make me so much less dependent on other people. Um, and when you're 18, 19, 20, 21, and you have no resources and no connections, that is incredibly valuable. Welcome to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast with Bree Noble. Bree is a musician, entrepreneur, speaker, and founder of Women of Substance Music Radio and Podcast. Bree's interviews with successful female musicians and industry pros are both inspirational and informational. She also answers your questions about the music business. Bree is on a mission to help you create great music, connect with your fans, and grow your business, and to truly become a female entrepreneur musician. Hey, hey, this is Brie Noble, and you are tuned in to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast, where we talk about making great music, connecting with your audience, and growing your business. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my free Musician's Profit Path Masterclass, the five-stage blueprint for creating massive growth in your fan base and sustainable income for your music career. If you feel overwhelmed by everything you think you need to do for your music career, or you've watched other musicians and tried to do what they're doing, but it hasn't worked for you, well, don't worry. That's why I created the five stages of music career growth. So you can figure out where you're at right now, learn exactly what you should be focusing on and what you shouldn't be focusing on so you don't waste time and money. I also give you benchmarks to reach in several key areas like live performing, fan base growth, social media, recording, and more. So join me for my free masterclass, The Musician's Profit Path, over at musiciansprofitpath.com. Free classes are running every day, so go register at musiciansprofitpath.com. I'm really excited for you to hear this interview today with Taryn Southern. It is a really juicy one, and she is just absolutely delightful, first of all, and she just wants to share with you guys you know, all the ups and downs of being a musician and being somebody in the public spotlight, a personality online. And she's got a lot of really great insights here. So we talk about everything from how she started her YouTube channel and what it's like to be a creator on YouTube. And we talk about her early days when she was on American Idol. And uh, she's got a really interesting story about that. And now what she's doing, she's pivoted a lot of times in her career, which I think is really interesting to a lot of us because sometimes we get in a rut and we think, what can we do to do something a little bit different, but still kind of bring our fans along with us as we turn this corner. So she talks about that and she talks about the corner that she's turning right now in doing some really interesting things with technology and she's even shooting a documentary right now, which she mentions in the beginning. So I highly recommend that you go check her out at TarynSouthern.com, T-A-R-Y-N-S-O-U-T-H-E-R-N.com to see all the different things she's doing. I couldn't even get into everything she's doing on this interview because there was so much great stuff. So go check that out. And I will tell you a little bit about Taryn Southern. Taryn Southern is an artist and technologist with more than 700 million views online. While she launched her career as one of the first creators on YouTube, she's now pioneering a new movement, the future of music. Taryn is the first artist to release a pop record composed and produced using artificial intelligence. 
I promise you, you're going to find this really interesting. We get to the artificial intelligence part of what she's doing right now near the end of the interview, but you're going to love everything that she's got to share today. So here is my interview with Taryn Southern. So that's a little bit about Taryn Southern. So Taryn, is there anything that you want to tell our listeners about you that's not in your bio that's maybe a little bit unique or quirky or interesting? I mean, I suppose what's interesting to me may not be interesting to everyone else, but I I studied anthropology in college and I always thought that I was going to be a documentarian. Mm. So pursuing music in any form was always kind of a happenstance. And now I think 12 years after graduating, I'm directing my first documentary. And yeah, so I that, saw that on your bio. Uh, so I was like, oh, thing. that clicked. That makes sense <laughs> that you're doing a documentary. Yeah. So I'm finally fulfilling my lifelong dream of doing documentary work. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about how you got into music then, since it wasn't kind of your, your first pursuit, but you must have you know, been involved in music as a kid. I was. I always loved music growing up. I didn't have a, a great big traditional music background. My parents don't play any instruments, but around fourth grade, I begged for piano lessons. So my mom signed me up for piano lessons with a neighbor down the street who usually would fall asleep <laughs> in the middle of the lessons. She was like 83 years old. Wow. And so I, I attempted to learn piano for a few years, but that got a bit frustrating for me. And then in middle school, I downloaded my first piece of, of software on, gosh, I don't know what version of a Dell or Windows computer we had back then, but it was, it was definitely arch- archaic, but it was exciting because I was able to compose music from scratch using just the computer. And that, that certainly spoke to me as someone who just never really learned the skills to play music. So I would usually spend my weekends or nights whenever I was free making little ditties on my computer. And then in high school, I put together my first ever demo album with the help of friends from my band class. <laughs> we just um, recorded in a friend's basement and it was four songs. And it took me, I think, a year to put that thing together because I just had no idea how to, do, how to do anything related to record recording or producing music. And it was really hard to find people in Wichita, Kansas especially who were in my age group at the time, 14, 15, 16, who knew how to use these tools. Yeah, I totally identify with that because I, I used to mess around a lot with MIDI and I did all of my own, you know, and, and I, I was trying to figure out like how to use the recording software and I could never find anything about how to do EQ and that kind of thing because it just wasn't very readily. But <laughs> now there's all these courses that you can take and, you know, but back in those early years. So like what, what year was this yeah. that we were doing? We didn't even really have Google. Oh man, when I, I when I was when I was playing around with this stuff, I was using AOL chat. Oh my gosh. Like chat groups to get answers. I would try to enter like music chat groups to get answers to questions about how to use the software. And I'm sure I was only u- using the software correctly 10% of the time and just mm. figuring out my own little hacks and workarounds that were probably pretty inefficient and frustrating. And I think that's exactly by I'd say by I don't know, junior year of high school, I was like, all right, my music production career is done. I can't figure this out. (laughs) (laughs) So is this in like the late 90s when you were doing this or early 2000s? This would have been, well, when I started making, I remember making my first song when I was in middle school. So that would have been the late 90s. Mm. And then, I don't know, 98. And then, then in high school, 
that's when I sort of threw in the towel. I graduated in 2003. So Mm, yeah, that's about when I was doing all the Smitty stuff and trying to figure it out and making my first MP3s and all that. It's so different now. Yeah, it was early days. I don't even remember if they had sound packs. So I would listen to the midis and they just sounded so awful because it was just that, that, yes, that electronic MIDI sound. Totally. And yeah, and not even like a good electronic sound. (laughs) So there was just, there was very little to, to, to play with and to work with and tutorials, as you said, to really help out someone who's a beginner in the space. So how did you kind of, like move this interest in technology and music along through the years? How did you develop into where you're at now? Honestly, it was always out of need. Mm. I think technology always spoke to me. While I was also making music, I learned how to code. Um, and so I built my first few websites using HTML. Oh my gosh. I was not a great coder. Very, you're very brave basic, though. But I learned all of <laughs> But I, But, you know, I... I felt at that time I needed a website. And so it's like, what do you do when you need a website and you don't have any money to pay someone? You learn how to do it yourself. And so I always saw technology as a means to an end. Um, And I think one thing that really potentially differentiates my generation from any previous generation is the fact that we had... I grew up starting in fifth grade. I remember getting my first piece of software with MS Paint. You know, where you could like do the paint. Um, It was like, really crappy, but, (laughs) but you could make stuff and you could print it out. And it was like, it was like the gates of opportunity opened up to me in those, in those early moments where I could see that technology was my entry point to being able to make stuff and get things out to the world. And then being able to communicate with people on the other side of the world in sixth, seventh grade via, I had the little terrible video camera, right? With the Skype and, and Figuring, I don't remember what the technology was then <laughs> allowed us to do that, but these kind of formative moments where I realized that technology could help me get things done mm. and that I was not limited to the information available to me in my, in my town with my community, you know, which would have been very limited at that time. And I think that that created for a lot of people in my generation, like a I think that there were just a lot of us who assumed that technology was our only way out. Like ah. if, if you're going to get anything done, you've got to learn how to do it yourself. Very DIY. Um, and that's really like the YouTube generation, I think too, was kind of born out of that. So I, for me, it wasn't that I maybe, maybe I wasn't so entranced by technology, but I was entranced by what it could do for me. I knew, I knew that if I could learn the skills to do certain things like code so I could make my own website or use this music software so I could make my own music, that would make me so much less dependent on other people. Um, And when you're 18, 19, 20, 21, and you have no resources and no connections, that is incredibly valuable to be able to do things yourself. You're so right. And that's kind of, I mean, for me, like being a fledgling songwriter, I wasn't going to go out and spend a whole bunch of money to produce my songs because I didn't even know if they were good. So technology of like being able to like do MIDI. I mean, I realized that the production sucked, but at least I could get my song across and people, you know, could enjoy it for what it was and that kind of thing. And I could, it just allowed me to like grow and move forward and actually get my song out there. Learn, and yeah. was decent to where someone could say like, yeah, that song has potential. Maybe you should record it. And then you move into the studio. So I love that, that idea of technology is just, you know, being able to kind of 
you kind of feel like you're in this hole as a musician, like you can't possibly get up to the level of the big boys. But, you know, mm-hmm. technology can kind of lift you a little bit closer to them as you learn more and more and more and more. And then you can, you know, for sure. And so it has so much. Yes. Yeah. And it's it really awesome. has. I mean, the, the playing field is so, as you know, it's so different now than, than it was 10, 15 years ago. While oh, it's sure. just as competitive, if not more competitive, the, the ability to get access to, to great tools and to make really good work with very little resources is night and day from what it was. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, people really, they really are lucky. You were kind of locked out of the industry back in the 80s and the 90s, early 90s anyway, if you didn't, you know, mm-hmm. get a record label or whatever. So that's, that's what I think is awesome about it. Well, let me let's switch gears a little bit. And t- I want to talk about your time on American Idol. I was thinking, gosh, did I see her on American Idol? I was a total AI watcher, you know, in the beginning. Um, but I believe <laughs> the year you were on there, I had a newborn and I didn't really watch it. So I'd love to find out a little bit mm. about, you know, your experience on the show. And if you think that it really kind of helped your career, you know, going forward, especially just because of the exposure as an artist. <laughs> well, so I did American Idol 3. Uh-huh. I was 17 years old. And at this point in time, I think I had pretty much decided I was going to go to college. I, I was going to do the regular people thing. I was not going to go and pursue uh, a career in music. But American Idol was this, was this really interesting opportunity. It was still so early. And it was, it was like the first show back on the scene that could break people. Yeah. So of course I I jumped at the opportunity to to audition. I was in LA at the time doing a summer internship, so I slept overnight at the Pasadena Rose Bowl. <laughs> and with I don't remember how many. I mean, it was I think it was in the tens of thousands, but I don't I don't wow. want to say something that's off, but it, it was it was crazy. I mean, that I slept overnight and I still waited for 8 hours the next day in a line to get into the Rose Bowl to sing 10 seconds of a song. And it was just like, yes, no, yes, no. Um, and I made it to the next round. And at that point, the next round was gonna, going to be three months later while I was a freshman in college, starting my freshman year in Miami. So I went down to Miami and they allowed me to do my second audition in the city of Atlanta because that was the closest I could get mm. um, to Miami. So I did that. That was the Paula Simon and Randy uh, round and they put me through to Hollywood. So then it was back to LA again for uh, the Hollywood rounds, which at that time I think was like the top 100. And um, so I was flying, you know, flying back and forth my first like three months of college missing school and I couldn't tell the professors what was going on. So it was all, all really weird. But by the time I got to Hollywood, I had never really performed outside of a high school theater. Wow. And I actually, I hadn't. And it was always, I had always performed as a character in a theater Mm -hmm. show, having rehearsed over and over and over and over. And that was just what my brain was accustomed to doing. And so performing as me with these songs that I had very little time to prepare for was so nerve wracking for me. And I just, I had bad nerves. I always had bad nerves as a kid. Even with my high school theater shows, I would almost want to throw up. So having the, um, you know, having the bar set as high as one of the top national television shows, it just crushed me. And so I made it past the first two rounds in the Hollywood round. And then I think once it was down to the, we were getting down to the top 
30 at the time. So from top 50 to top 30. And that's where I got cut in a very, very dramatic fashion. I forgot all of my lyrics in that round. And it was, of course, shown in all of its glory um, on national TV. And I had, there was an interview with Ryan Seacrest where I had I had expressed my concern about forgetting the lyrics um, because I had had that happen to me in the sixth grade at the sixth grade talent show. And I thought, oh my gosh, if that happens again, my whole life is over. And of course it happened again. And I stood there on that stage paralyzed. And I went home for two weeks after that, or a week. It was something like I took two weeks off from school because I was so devastated. And I thought at the time, 17, 18 years old, I thought my life is over. Everyone watches this show. I will never have a career in music. And even if I have any other career, people will know it's so embarrassing. And of course, of course, life goes on and (laughs) all is forgotten. But at the time, it was such a harrowing experience. I said, never again. And so the only reason I ever got back into music, which was, gosh, five years later, I don't think I sang for five years, um, was because I was back out in LA uh, I had, I had been brought back out for other opportunities unrelated to singing, um, in the TV hosting arena and decided to make a funny music video myself. And I, I recorded it in my bedroom and didn't have to sing in front of anyone. And that is what got me back into music. And that music video went viral. That was back in 2007. And as a result of that music video, I was asked to perform on more shows. <laughs> so that's how I ended up circuitously. Wow. Wow. What, what even gave you the idea music to was, do was via, via comedy? That's so funny. Um, well, because at that point in time, I was like, I think I was 21, 22. And I, I had decided I was back in LA. I was making money as a, as a host now. For some reason, hosting never made me nervous. I was fine talking in front of a camera, but <laughs> singing in front of a camera, not so much. And and I started doing some comedic hosting, like, more, and I wouldn't say stand up, but just like more comedy oriented hosting. And so I was getting in, a lot of my friends were com- comedy actors, and I just found all of that really fun and interesting. And so I don't know, I loved musicals, and I, and I think High School Musical had just come out. And so I was making funny songs just mm. in my free time. It was just something fun. And I think for me, because it was comedy, it took all the pressure off mm. it being good because people when you're watching a, a comedy musical they're not sitting there analyzing whether or not you're good enough to be a pop star they just want to know like are you entertaining enough is this song silly enough to make me laugh and so it took all the pressure off and that's i did that for five years i made i made musical comedy videos on youtube i think i made gosh i probably made over 30 musical comedy gosh. songs um that that got like millions and millions of over, over like 200 million views on these videos. Cause there wasn't, there weren't a lot of people doing YouTube at that time and certainly not musical comedy on YouTube. So I kind of carved out this weird little niche for myself, but I hid, I hid behind the musical comedy for a while, even though I so badly wanted to get back into to serious mm-hmm. music. Well, I mean, and I love, you know, the lesson out of the whole American Idol thing. It's true that you think at the time, Oh my gosh, my life is over. And, you know, I just think it's really good for our listeners to hear that, like, no, life is not over. I I mean, we totally get it. Like, I had a time, I was singing at something last Christmas, and I had been singing, like, for hours the night before, and I got up on stage to sing, and I was actually singing a classical piece, and, like, I opened my mouth, and nothing would come out. I'm like, what the heck? What is going on? It has never happened to me. It just, like, my voice, I just couldn't, like, 
activated, it wouldn't work. And it took me mm-hmm. like another, like two minutes of like, okay, I can do that. You know, it's going to work now. And then I'd saying the program just fine, but it was like the craziest thing. And I felt like, oh my gosh, I can never show my face on this stage again. I can't believe this happened. It's never happened to me before. And so yeah. if any of you guys out there that are listening, this has happened to like, there is, there is life after that. Um, Obviously, Taryn has had a huge career after that on YouTube and more that we'll talk about in a minute. But you guys, like, yeah, you can spend that time kind of grieving over it and then just go like, yeah, nobody's going to remember this in a month or two. So I'll move on. Right? Mm -hmm. So important. Such an important lesson. Absolutely true. And so I love that you got back into music by doing something that was fun and uh, whimsical and it didn't really connect with the other thing that had happened. And so, um, so this must've been like right around the time that YouTube, well, I don't, I can't remember when it was that Google bought them, but like when it started actually getting big. Yeah, that's right. 2008, that. I think okay. 2007 is when, um, people started using it as a tool. And I, at that time I was probably uploading one video every I don't know, once a year. I think from like 2007 to 2011, I released a musical comedy video a year. And then in 2012, I did a whole comedy album that was musical. Mm. I did, I also did a series, like a, like a spoof on High School Musical, I think in 2009, that was six, six songs, six episodes. So there was a, a whole slew of, of comedy songs that I did in that, in that time frame. Um, I sold a pilot to MTV that was a dirty musical comedy pilot <laughs> based on based on the, the musicals I've been uploading to YouTube. It sadly did not get picked up to series, but um, my whole life became really, really started revolving around this musical comedy thing, mm. um, which, was, which was a lot of fun. And then in 2013, Sirius Radio started playing one of my musical comedy songs, which was really ironic to me because of course it was a ridiculous song about a girl who stalks someone online. It was called Crush. But of all my songs, it was probably the most, um, what do I want to say? It's probably the most radio friendly. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't listening super carefully to the lyrics, it could sound just like a regular pop song about a girl who's got a crush. Right. <laughs> and so they started playing and spinning it. And it ended up, it ended up breaking the top 100 in radio at the time um, because they were playing it so often. And And then Billboard invited me in to do a story. And I just got that little taste of like, oh, here's what it could be like if I, if I took my music seriously, people here, they think the song is really good. And then the funny thing is once they realize it's a comedy song, they they laugh. They're like, oh my God, it's so ridiculous. (laughs) But, but they thought the song was really good. And so I had just not had that experience because the five years prior to that, it was always like, is the song funny or not? not is the song good. And so hearing someone or a group of people say, this is a great song. And then I, I performed at a concert at VidCon and there were all these teen girls singing every single word to the song. Oh my God. Not ironically. <laughs> they did not find it funny. They found it very relatable to their experience, uh, which I find really funny because they grew up with all the social media. So they know exactly how to stalk their crushes. Yeah, but Teens really are um, kind of stalkers, I think. I mean, even with... <laughs> I remember being a bit of a stalker of certain people I had crushes on, you know. So funny. But yeah, I think that was a that was a moment for me where I said, "Oh my gosh, okay, I have an opportunity here to take my music seriously and 
I'm the one holding myself back. I'm the one who keeps telling myself I'm not good enough, but why don't I just, I don't, I could just give it a try. And I knew that it was going to be hard because my audience at this point, at this point I had racked up, I think 400,000 subscribers on YouTube, all who were interested in my musical comedy, my comedy videos, not serious stuff, but I had to take the chance. So I started making cover songs and a few originals and posting that intermittently and just really found myself having so much fun getting back into music. And um, yeah, it was just such a, it was, um, it was a really circuitous path back. Did you find the audience that you had gotten from all these comedy videos were accepting of the covers and kind of you changing your style? Some of them, I mean, I'd say, I'd say most of them actually were uh, pretty accepting, but the algorithm punishes you in its own way. Mm. So it's, it's less about the audience. If, if the audience isn't super interested and so they're not watching the whole video or they're clicking out, then the algorithm learns that there's something you're doing that is no longer engaging your audience, even though I was just trying to make a, a pivot. And so around that time, I started seeing a dip in my, in my views. And, and I think that's so much about what was showing up to my subscribers. Because a lot of them just were not... It's not that they didn't like what I was doing. They just they prefer the comedy stuff. So then right. they'd, want, they'd wait until I could do the comedy stuff. But then, but then I realized my videos were not popping up in subscriber feeds or the emails weren't going out, probably because YouTube's algorithm was showing that there was a drop in engagement from my existing subscriber base. And that's, that's part, of the, part of the problem you know, of, of doing YouTube is it's very, very hard to make big pivots or switch over to new styles without, without the algorithm punishing you. Yeah. Do you think that's true? I mean, there's so many YouTube people that have made uh, a huge uh, subscribership from doing covers and then they try to convert to originals. Do you think that happens to them too? I'm sure. I'm sure. And I mean, originals just never do as well as covers either. People want to hear the songs that they know. So that's just part of the reality of it. But there's, there are a number of reasons why trying to beat the YouTube algorithm is, is sort of an endless endless quest that yeah kind of sucks your soul out of you know sucks yeah, your read, soul out of the process i read an article that where you were interviewed for business insider and you were talking about that and how you you had to kind of take mm-hmm. a break and you know um get good with yourself again and live real life and all that which i totally identify with and so i, I wanted to ask you do you think you know in 2018 can an artist still like build an audience, whether it's on YouTube or Facebook live or whatever it is without feeling like they're on a hamster wheel all the time. Because like you said, like the algorithm might punish you if you're not constantly putting stuff in front of people. I know I saw in the article, you were saying like people were starting to have to publish like five times a week and you know, it just becomes Mm -hmm. like, like you feel like get me out of here, you know, get me off of here. Yeah. Yeah, you 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 just become like a slave to the numbers. Right. You're just chasing the numbers every single upload and you don't get to take time off. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. like a normal company where you're unpunished from that. I you know, I think it's a big problem. I do think a lot of content creators, particularly those who've been around for a long time are experiencing severe burnout. The algorithm changes every so often. Right now it really favors long videos. So videos that are 8 to 10 minutes in length, which for musicians is not a great thing. Because if you're right. recording a song and you just want a three minute 
song to go up, that's, that's less helpful. Um, it's also just not great for, for content creators who, who do want to upload a certain quality of content and really plan out what they're doing. Frequency is favored. Mm. Now, this all being said, I still think it's possible to build an audience on YouTube and to crack that code. And if I was 20 years old right now, I'd probably still go after playing that game because it's, it is, it is, it is a crackable format. It's just that now I don't find that kind of life to be nearly as um, livable as like the one that you could get by doing eight years ago on YouTube. I person I personally could not make 10 minute videos five days a week right now. I'd go crazy. No, and I don't think I would find that fun. I think I would be really, really bored, like vlogging all the time. I want to be able to live my life. I don't like having a camera out every second of the day. And some people are okay with that. And that's fine. Um, and maybe if I was much younger and I, I would I would be down to get back into that into that game in order to create a window of opportunity for myself. Cause that's, I mean, that is so much of this, right? It's like when you are starting out, the reality is until you have built something for yourself, until you have work to show, until you have value to offer others in a, in an open marketplace, you have to create that. And so whether that's value in terms of building up subscribers on YouTube or, or an audience that you can, you can talk to that trusts you, or if that's just building up an impressive body of work of really great stuff, right? Like any of those things are, are metrics of value in an ecosystem. And until you have that, it's really, really hard to build any sort of foundation that makes it easier for, for you to kind of like be flexible, be adaptable, make changes to your career, uh, and build up like a, a healthy network of people. So, so at this point in my career, like I'm just not going to do a lot of the stuff that I did at 2021 to try and create that window of opportunity. But I also now have a, a large body of work that to some degree speaks for itself. Not to say that you can ever rest on your laurels because that is certainly not the case. Like I still work really, really hard. I just don't, I don't work quite as hard. And I don't put myself through certain things that just I know to be not worth the stress. Yeah, I think that's true for any kind of a business, whether it's a musician or, you know, like, for example, my business here, like, I don't do things now that I used to do when I first started, because you do have to hustle, you do have to get in front of as many people as possible to kind of build up that, Mm -hmm. you know, audience. And like you said, just that snowball effect. So, I mean, all of you musicians that are in the hustle phase that are listening, you will be able to get past that. Like she said, you still work hard, but you don't feel like you're constantly hustling, but you, you do have to kind of go through this ramping up period and it is hard. And, That's right. And if you stick with it, you will beat 90% of the people because most people don't stick with it. That's I right. I truly That's believe right. that. I, tr- I always believe Perseverance. that I just kept doing this, you know, I would yeah. get somewhere and it's, it's so true, but so many people just, you know, shiny object syndrome, or they just get tired or life gets in the way yeah. hard. <laughs> That's right. It's so true. I mean, if I look at most of my friends, the ones who worked the hardest are the ones that have the most long-term stability and success. 
in whatever form that is. And, and a lot of them recognized in the early stages when they were in hustle mode and how to create the most value when they had nothing to offer. That, that I, I honestly find that to be one of the most crucial parts of being like a solo entrepreneur is knowing your value relative to others and being able to respond or take action based on that perceived value. So I'll give you an example. There's a girl who I've known for a long time, super hard worker. She always wanted to be a YouTuber and she was a a total hustler, producer, great at making content. But many years ago, it was just, it's so hard. I mean, even back in 2012, 2013, it was really hard to build an audience. It's, It's still hard. It was hard then. It's just different levels of hard and different entry points, right? To get in. But she she knew that she had no audience. So she had very little, very little to offer other YouTubers, but she had some access to them being in LA. And so she would always offer to produce their videos for them. It's like, why would a girl offer to produce a video for free for YouTubers? I mean, it's like hard work. And then she'd get like a little spot in, in the background of the videos or whatever. And she did that for, I don't know, two, three years. And meanwhile, she would make videos at night or on weekends on the side on her own channel. And she did that for years. And sometimes they do okay. But most of the time, like she just wasn't getting very many views without the exposure of these other YouTubers. And then finally, she had a big, big video hit. And when that happened, she now had all of these resources and connections with these other YouTubers. And she was able to start bringing them onto her channel and doing cross-promotional stuff. She now has, I think, 6 million subscribers. And... And she deserves it better than anybody because I never saw anyone hustle as much as this girl. And she put in so much free labor for these people. But the reality was they were big YouTubers. She was not. She recognized that she had very little value. And so she made herself valuable to them. And by doing that, they, it, it all came back to her. And, I, and I've seen that time and time again. And that, and that's just one system, right? I'm not saying that like that's how everyone should go about <laughs> building their careers, like w- working for people for free um, to make YouTube videos. But that was just that was her thing that she did, and and I honestly I think she also just did it because she really loved making videos and she really loved to learn, and so it didn't feel like she was doing it in hopes of getting something back. She just always liked being indispensable to people, and. And of course, now she's created tremendous value for herself. And now she doesn't have to collaborate with, <laughs> with anybody. Right. She, she can, can now pick and choose. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I love that example. And that can be so true for musicians too. I mean, I, I truly believe that the more people that you help, um, the more it will help you in the future. But you have to help them mm-hmm. because you really want that's right. help. Right. Not just because you're expecting something in return. You want something back. Yeah. Right. And so it really takes a certain kind of mindset, I think, of being okay with you know having zero expectations, gen- genuinely wanting to learn, looking at someone who's, you know, who's maybe done something amazing or has has a great body of work or or has built an audience and say like what can I learn from them that I'm not in- integrated into my work and then figuring out a way to be valuable. And I think that that's, that's the kind of attitude and mentality of, of someone starting out that, is, that will stand out from everyone else. Because most people are just focusing on how they can, basically how they can get themselves out there, uh-huh. which is also super important. 
But if you're not figuring out how to create value within the ecosystem, I think it is so much harder to ever be seen. It just is. Yep. Absolutely. Totally agree. Well, let me switch gears again. I want to talk about your new project because this is even like another kind of pivot for you, which is really cool. And it's what got me interested in talking with you to begin with, because I've never heard of anything like this. So you have a new (laughs) album that is totally created with artificial intelligence. And when I first heard this, I was like, I don't even understand how this can be. Like, wouldn't it just sound crazy? (laughs) Um, I was thinking either like, oh, it sounds really boring or, oh, it sounds totally random, you know, like 12 tone or something. Mm -hmm. Um, So explain to the audience, like what that means to have an entire album created with artificial intelligence. Sure. So I basically used AI as my sole compositional tool. Um, now when we start getting into the explanation of how that works, you'll see that it's a very iterative process between myself and the AI, Mm. but the, the best kind of example I can use to simplify, oversimplify the process is I take on the role of director and editor, almost like of a movie. I give the AI direction. It then spits out raw material gives me the raw material, and then I edit that raw material together into something that I deem interesting. And that's, that's really it's kind of the most simplistic way of putting it. But essentially, I'm working with a couple of different technologies, uh, Amper, Ava, Watson, Magenta, to create music. Um, some of the music, when it comes out of the, out of the software, or out of the network, does sound pretty random. Sometimes it sounds pretty cohesive. It depends on what I direct the AI to do. Uh, it, it, it depends on what kind of parameters I start with. And those parameters could be anything from instrumentation to BPM to key to style, tone. And these kinds of parameters are really determined by the engineers that create the AI mm-hmm. um, technology. So you have to sort of know within each technology what the limitations are, what what like style preferences or parameters mean, what kinds of things it'll it'll give you with each of these settings. And then I can I can tell the network to change or alter any one aspect of the song once I once I get it back. So there can be this back and forth process, sometimes dozens of times where I'll say, ah, let's I like that song, but let's take out the drums and the violin and let's add a synth and let's change the key to C. And then it'll give me another iteration on that mm-hmm. track. So there's a big iterative process. Then at the end, when I'm happy with the general direction of a song, I'll download all the stems or I'll download the MIDI, depending on which software I'm using, import that into Logic and arrange the song just like, a, like I would any other pop song. So it has a, a verse and a chorus and another verse, <laughs> something that resembles that. Because usually it, it, what I'm getting is kind of like a five minute long train of music. And I'll just pick out the sections that I really, really like from that and build a, build a song. And so that's why when people hear my album, it doesn't sound like anything super wacky um, because it has this, it still has the structure of, of, a, of a pop song. And that's me really arranging those pieces, but all of the music, all of the composition that you're hearing, I mean, that is, that is AI. I mean, that's, 
That's amazing. That, I mean, it really, it really does that. sound like an actual mm-hmm. regular pop song. Like I listen to what, what's, how can they listen to your new single? What's the easiest way for them to listen to it? Cause I want them to listen to it. And well, the album, that it's totally normal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the album comes out September 27th. Um, but I have three singles that are currently up on my YouTube channel. Okay. Love and when Sick, this, when this is released, the album will be out uh, anyway, so they can listen to it. Oh, great. Okay. So you can go and download the album or listen to the album on Spotify and you'll see, I mean, you'll notice some of the songs sound more standard than others. Um, and to some degree, I made certain choices to keep, so I, I made some choices to keep some of the songs a bit more wacky so that it can, so that you can hear what kinds of things, what kinds of choices the AI makes that I find interesting. Hmm. Um, but in other cases, like I, I also, there were, there were pieces of music that were exported that were very simple. And I thought that's kind of amazing that it, it, the simplicity sometimes is more impressive because <laughs> you're like, wow, that sounds really cohesive. But I think the, the big takeaway from something like this was that this d- making this album was no less work for me than making an, a regular album with a producer. And I actually still enlisted the help of one of my producer friends who I've worked with for many years who I adore because I just, it, it's always better with someone who knows music better than I, um, how to editorially make certain decisions about the music. But the reality is I could have made this entire album by myself. And that I've never had that opportunity. And I think a lot of solo musicians, particularly vocalists who write music um, in their head, you know, with, with notes in their head, and they're just trying to, to get it out and find a producer who can bring that song to life with the vision that they have. That's really empowering to know that they, they could make music from scratch and that they're still making really heavy-handed editorial decisions. I mean, if I played you the different versions of the songs at every iteration, you'd be like, whoa, those songs like really changed quite a bit based mm-hmm. on your editorial decisions that you would, you would go back to the AI and say, make this choice. And then it sends something back and it's so much better. So that's interesting. It's kind of like what a director does on set. They're like, Hey, actors, like that was pretty good, but can you just like change this one thing? And all of a sudden the scene comes to life. And so I don't find it any less creative. It's just different. It's just a different process. So, so uh, I, yeah, I guess like in my, in my mind, I'm not going to stop making music the regular way as well. But it's just nice to know that I have this other, other sort of option at my disposal and using this other option also opens up other opportunities for me. Oftentimes, like just the fact that I'm writing with a partner that I can't anticipate their choices. Mm. (laughs) I'm writing with a partner. It's like you're co-writing with the computer. Yeah. And like, let's say I want, let's say I want to co-write with a computer that has learned off of only Beethoven music. I don't really know anyone that has studied Beethoven in Los Angeles. So Uh um, that's a really interesting opportunity for me to create a pop song with a Beethoven expert. And I find that supremely delicious and interesting and definitely an exercise in creativity. So it doesn't, I don't think it takes away from the standard or traditional process of making music, but I do think it, it opens up new access points for people in terms of how they think about music, in terms of their musical influences. And 
potentially why, why did like, what do I want to say? Widening the box, mm. so to speak of, of that we all kind of play in when we're making, when we're making our music. No, that's a really cool way to look at it. I hadn't thought of that, like just picking the background or what the AI knows versus doesn't know is kind of like you said, choosing mm-hmm. a collaborator that has a certain specialty. So how, how do you plan to perform these songs? Well, I have been performing. I've been performing the last year at quite a few different places, Um, Google and various festivals and a lot of, a lot of tech related conferences. They, they've invited me to perform. So that's been a lot of fun. And I perform the songs just like I would any other song. I don't play instruments. So it's just me up on a stage. And usually I have the music video playing behind me or something like that. I mean, if I had all the money in the world, I would I would hire uh, a band of half human, half robot <laughs> musician. A couple robots on the drums, and then some humans on guitar and piano, and call it a day. Mm, that'd be awesome. Um, I think that'd be so fun, but I don't have all the money in the world. So maybe, maybe at some point in the future, I can travel around with my merry band of of robots. That would be very <laughs> cool. Well, we're getting to the end of our interview. I just wanted to ask you, uh, I asked everybody this question. Do you have any resources that you'd like to share with our audience that have helped you over the years, whether it's like books, um, blogs, podcasts, anything that have helped you with, you know, either the business side of music, songwriting, or, you know, producing, or even like self-help kind of things? All of the above. Oh, Mm. man. Um, I mean, I read... I used to read all the time. I would I would read every self-help book and kind of business entrepreneurship books that felt relevant for a solopreneur. Mm. Uh, you know, the 4-hour work week had a pretty big impact on me and that was that came out a long long me time ago. Me too, but I still but just, think about parts of that book all the time. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's like a great starter book in terms of just thinking about your life as a as an entrepreneur and backing into what you want because at the end of the day <laughs> you chose to be a solo entrepreneur who's also an artist for a reason and hopefully that is because it's fulfilling um i don't really believe in the whole chasing happiness thing i think like happiness is relative and it comes and it goes but but doing something fulfilling that that's sometimes that that's blood and tears and, and a lot of bad things, right? It's like not always a happy emotional state that comes with that, but it's fulfilling. And so taking that as the sort of end goal and then saying, well, what does that look like? What does my life look like in five years, seven years when I've built something fulfilling and being realistic about all the possibilities, which are that there's always a possibility that you'll achieve grandiose success beyond your wildest dreams. And a lot of times that's not actually what you want. (laughs) Um, But what about like just mediocre? I mean, what about just being able to make it and, and like, what does that look like? And I think having people really get specific about what their life looks like and then developing the routines and the behaviors and the, um, the, kind of regimen to back into those goals is super crucial. It's like start building the life that you want right now and 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 just be just be persistent. And like that is the key. But anyway, those books, I think like 4 hour work week is a great starter because it helps people think in terms of 
how they can create early value when they have none. So it's kind of that thing I was talking about earlier. And how to how to look at time as your greatest depreciating asset. Absolutely. Um, so yes. you only you, you really only have a limited amount of time. Like everything else can, you can accrue in life and time is the one thing you don't get back. So really taking that into uh, into consideration and into the equation and knowing like what we were talking about earlier when you're in the grinding phase, when you're in the build momentum phase, knowing that that's the phase you're in and really maximizing that because the reality is after 10 years of doing it, you are not going to have the same energetic disposition. You're just not. Yep. And so you've got to plan <laughs> for those, those dips that will happen. Or if you want to have kids, or if you want to, like anytime you're taking on more responsibility, you're a little less risk. You know, you're not able to take on as many risks. So just like knowing that, planning for that, I think those things are all valuable things to think about um, and important. Absolutely. I totally agree. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's been so great to have you on the show today. Um, can you let Thank our you listeners know me. the best way that they can get in touch with you online and connect with you? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm on all the social medias, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, everything is just under my name, Taryn Southern. I do check everything. I'd love to hear from any of your listeners about what they think of any of this. And yeah, I enjoy just hearing from people in the music community. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all your insights today. Now go out and make great music, connect with your fans and grow your business. Female Entrepreneur Musician has been brought to you by femusician.com and femalemusicianacademy.com. With editing by Jen Eads of 317 Sound Design and music by Stella Ronson.